Well, good morning, everybody. Let's pray together before we begin. Father God, thank you for bringing us to this space. Whether we're in here online, thank you for allowing us to, uh, to search your word together. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak, that we would have ears to hear what you have to say. Uh, and I pray, Father, ultimately in this moment that I would just disappear and that your Holy Spirit would remain as we listen to your word. So we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are in the fourth week of our series, Moments with Jesus, where we are looking at very specific moments that, that took place in the life and the ministry of Jesus for the purpose of getting to know him better. We want to inhabit these stories and try to, uh, try to understand the character of our Savior. What's he like? What's he feel? What's he, what does he care about? And so we've looked at everything from the fact that he is merciful in who he calls to be his follower. He's, he's compassionate with the, the co- concern and care he has for other people. We looked last week at his divinity and the transfiguration story. And today, well, today we're taking a bit of a, a, an interesting twist because we are going to look at a story that is very different than the ones we've looked at before. It's a moment with Jesus that is, I would say, hands down the most provocative moment in his entire ministry. It's the most provocative moment. It's the moment where he clears the temple. And you'll understand what that means in a second. But this moment is very provocative. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of shocking, honestly, of what Jesus does. And it's so provocative, in fact, that all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all go out of their way to make sure that they capture this moment. And it's such a big deal that Mark makes it clear this moment is the moment that the, the religious leaders of Israel make up their minds, yep, we're going to kill this guy. This is what caused that. And so this is a significant moment. We're going to look at it and hopefully try to understand a bit more of why Jesus did what he did and what what this was all about. So grab a Bible. We're going to look at Matthew's version of this story in Matthew 21, starting in verse 12. This will be page 818 in the House Bibles in the seat in front of you if you want to use one of those. And while you're turning there, just a quick little, uh, little family business kind of thing. So last night at our Saturday night service, we had a town hall gathering for our Saturday night attenders where we got to hear from them uh, and, and share a little bit with them because we are, as you may have heard last week, we are ending our Saturday night services. After 20 years of doing that, we feel it's really important in this sort of new world that we're living in to, to gather the people of grace together, to focus our energy to be good stewards of our time and our volunteers and our resources. And so we're going to be doing Sunday-only services for the first time in in two decades. Uh, And obviously, for people who've been going to Saturday night for a really long time, this is a challenge. It's it's painful. The, The general consensus that we seem to hear from everybody was we completely understand the decision, but it is still very, uh, very sad. So we, we had a chance to process with them, and one of the things that I heard, one person raised their hand, and, and just as a, as a request, they said, so when I first came to Grace, I think I accidentally sat in someone's assigned seat, and they were really upset with me, and they were staring daggers at me, and is it possible that you might be able to encourage the people on Sunday morning to be gracious with us, because we don't know where everybody is supposed to sit? And I said, I will absolutely do that, and so I'm doing that right now. When, in the beginning of November, in two weeks, when we have just Sunday morning services, if you have a beloved seat that is yours, that you have claimed, would you please be gracious if you find some strange new person sitting there and maybe get to know them. Maybe ask them, hey, are you coming from Saturday night? I don't know. You might just make a friend. So 
Thank you for being gracious in advance. Let's not stare daggers at anybody because our church is coming together in a new way, okay? Thank you very much. All right. So let's talk about this story of Jesus clearing the temple. Let me give you just a bit of context first. Uh, Most of Jesus' ministry took place in more of a rural part of Israel, up in Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel at the time. And uh, he spends his time up there doing miracles and teaching. and, And in fact, all of the other moments with Jesus that we've looked at in this story so far, they've all taken place in Galilee. But... All of the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their, their gospel builds up to this big moment where Jesus goes to Jerusalem, the big city, the capital of Israel. And this is the, the climactic moment where he spends a week in Jerusalem and it ends with his execution and his resurrection. So everything is building to this moment. And uh, it's kind of significant. When he arrives in Jerusalem, he's greeted like a king. He has this big triumphal entry. He rides in on a donkey, which, which is humility, but it's also what, what King David rode in on. And so it's a, it's a way of essentially people recognizing he's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited king. We've been waiting for this guy. He comes into great fanfare. And then, according to these gospel stories, the very next thing he does is this. All right, let's read this. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. That's code for Messiah. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. Okay, Six verses, what do they mean? What is this all about? What in the world was Jesus up to? Does he have some problem? Does Jesus have a problem with with money changers, like as a profession? Does he he believe it's bad for people to sell animals for sacrifice? What, What in the world? What's going on? Well, let's talk about it. This, these six verses, as you're going to see, are actually tied into a lot of other stuff that, that it's all culminating here. And so there are a few different threads that I want to I pay attention to because they all weave into this moment with Jesus. So I want to start with what I'll call is the, the, the messianic thread. Okay, the messianic thread. This is the, the, the world behind the text of what was going on in the world of Jesus' day. There was uh, an understanding that when the Messiah, the promised king, the long-awaited king of Israel showed up, he was going to do something very specific. Everybody understood that the Messiah had a job to do, which was to clear out the corruption and the immorality and the foreign influence from Israel. That's what the Messiah was going to do. And, and everybody was waiting for this to happen. And actually, the prior two centuries leading up to Jesus, uh, there were a lot of would-be Messiahs trying to do that very thing. Even when Jesus was a young man, there were these, these, these guys that wanted to be Messiah, and they were going around telling everybody, stop paying taxes to Rome. It's time to kick out the bad guys. We're getting Israel back to what it was meant to be. So everybody had this mentality. The, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to clear things out. 
It's going to make it right. Um, and, and there's one really prominent example of this kind of thing happening in 160s BC, so like about, I don't know, 190 years before Jesus clears the temple. There was something called the Maccabean Revolt, and just bear with me, I think it's interesting. There was a, a, uh, a this empire, the Seleucid Empire, that was ruling in Jerusalem, and they had a really nasty king, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was ruling in Jerusalem. He was a bad guy. He was really just downright evil. And there was this group of, of rebels, these, these Jewish guerrilla fighters. I mean, it's basically Star Wars. They, they have no power, and they're out in the, in the wilderness, and they, they put this rebellion together, and they manage to kick out Antiochus Epiphanes, to kick out the Seleucids from Jerusalem. And their leader, Judas Maccabeus, he actually has this huge temple rededication, this temple cleansing ceremony, which everybody's like, finally, finally, we've kicked out the foreign influences. The temple is back to the way it's meant to be. And fun fact, that moment, that temple rededication, that is what Hanukkah celebrates. You'll learn something new the more you know. Anyway, so um, (laughs) now you can say that at parties and everyone will be like, why? (laughs) Anyway, um, but that's what Hanukkah celebrates, the rededication of the temple. Okay, so you can get this in your mind. Everybody understands that when there are foreign powers, you need the Messiah to come in and kick them out. And there were some foreign powers at work in Jerusalem in Jesus' time. Rome was at pretty much its apex. This is the most powerful Rome had had pretty much ever been. And they were ruling in Jerusalem. They had a a, a king, Herod the Great, that Rome, uh, well, Herod and then his sons that Rome basically backed. And these guys were kind of in the vein of Antiochus Epiphanes. They weren't great guys. And you could look at the temple itself and you just knew Rome was in control. Because Herod, Herod the Great, as he liked to call himself, Herod the Great, he decided he was going to do this huge, decades-long beautification and expansion project in the temple. So when Jesus was there, very likely there would have been like scaffolding up and and stonemasons chiseling stuff away. They made this temple like two or three times bigger than it was before. And, And frankly, even though this was after Herod had already died, the whole thing was like a monument to to him. And so you, you got this, this meeting place between God and humans, which was becoming a monument to Herod, this Roman-backed king. Now, along with all of this, at the same time, the Jewish aristocracy in Jesus' day, they were, they were super corrupt. They were the priests, many of the priests who were like the religious leaders of Israel, they were cozying up to Rome. They were, they were uh, lying in their pockets. They're getting a whole bunch of, uh, of money. They're living large because of their connections with Rome. It was a mess. And in fact, this may be the reason that there were money changers and animal sellers in the temple at all, because it wasn't always like this. It had only happened like maybe a few years before Jesus cleared it out. Before this, all the animal sellers were over on the Mount of Olives. People would buy the animals and then bring them into the temple. But these priests, maybe because they, they felt like it would be a good way to make a bit, an extra buck, they decided that they could bring all these, these merchants into the temple courts. And so essentially, and we don't know exactly why they did it. People blamed Caiaphas, the high priest. I don't know. But, but what we know is that this was an indication that the leaders of Israel had lost their way. They had really lost their way. They had turned a sacred space into a marketplace. And more, uh, more likely than not, they were doing it to enrich themselves. Okay? This is a problem. This is a problem. So imagine all these things. You've got, you've got a foreign power 
dominating the city. You've got corruption at the highest levels. You've got shady dealings on display in a holy place. If you were a a patriotic, God-fearing Israelite, you would have been waiting desperately for somebody to come and make it all right. You were waiting for a Messiah to come and kick them out and, and, and put things the way they were supposed to be. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He's not the Messiah people were expecting, but this is what he does, a very messianic thing. He enters the city like a king, the triumphal entry, and then he goes and he does this messianic thing. He clears out the corruption that had entered God's temple, just like the freedom fighters that had come before. He was the Messiah. So, that's one of the threads to this story. You gotta understand the the messianic thread to understand this story. But there are other threads at work here. And that was the world behind the text. I think it's important that we understand the world of the text as well. What, what, how does this story, this passage, connect to all the other passages that are connected to it in Scripture? So I want to talk about what I'll call the prophetic thread to this story. What's the prophetic thread? Well, when you look at the whole story of Scripture— you see a pretty clear storyline that develops. And the way I like to describe it is that it is a story of God trying to bring humanity back to Eden, back to to his intentions, back to life, back to his presence, back to abundance and goodness and justice and all all of the things. It's God trying to bring us back to him. And and so that's the the overarching storyline. We broke the world, God unbreaks it. That's the story so that we can live with him. And the temple, this is way more than we can get into right here, but the temple plays a really big part in that story. The temple and the the tabernacle before it was basically like a tent temple that went with the people as they were traveling. The temple was actually meant to represent a mini Eden, a mini Eden. Just like the Garden of Eden, the temple was a place where heaven and earth met right? In the middle of that, that temple, that was where God dwelled, and so you knew God's presence was there right in the middle of the temple, just like God's presence was in Eden. The temple was a place where, where the people could offer sacrifices to make things right if they had broken something, and so it, it represented God's intentions for the world, and the temple was always meant to be a place of justice, where poverty and oppression and violence have no place, It was meant to be uh, a place of God's intentions coming to fruition. In short, the temple was meant to be a way for God to bring Israel back to Eden, but not just for themselves, not just for themselves. The whole reason that God wanted to bring Israel back is so that they could in turn bring back all the other nations on earth back to Eden. So this temple, this one little building was meant to represent the, the epicenter of blessing for the world. This was going to be the one place that would radiate outward and all the the prophets dream of a time when all the nations will come to the temple to meet with God. This is a mini Eden. But when you read the story of Scripture, what you see is that pretty much from the get-go, that's not what happened. That's not what happened because the the, the leaders of Israel again and again and, and the priests whose job it was to maintain this mini Eden, the temple, they constantly work at corrupting the whole thing. They, they poison this well of blessings. They worship other gods. They, they, uh, they use this temple system as a way to enrich themselves and to spread injustice. 
The story of, of, remember Jesus talking about the widow putting in the, the, the two coins that she gave everything she had? If you look at the context of that story, it's a story that references how they are exploiting widows. That's what he's actually talking about there. This whole system was there to disrupt and corrupt uh, the people who needed it, the, the, the people that it was meant to serve. The temple was, was supposed to be this, this epicenter of blessing, but it had been poisoned. This, the well of blessing had been poisoned by these leaders. Ultimately, by, by allowing their corruption to, to spread into the temple system, these leaders had put up a barrier between people and God. There was a wall that they were building between the people and God at the very place where God was meant to meet with them. Which is why all through the Old Testament, the prophets, they are not happy The prophets are constantly decrying all the the corruption of Israel's leaders. For example, Jeremiah, I mean, he was, they did not like it. The leaders of Israel did not like Jeremiah because he was on their case. But he said this, uh, quoting God, he was saying, don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Does that sound familiar? That's what Jesus was quoting. Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, that's just one example. There are tons of other examples of of the prophets calling out Israel's leaders, but ultimately they understood that there would come a time when God himself would sweep in and clear out the mess. The prophet Malachi, he had a way of talking about this. Look at this. He said, said, then the Lord you're seeking will suddenly come to his temple, but who will be able to bear it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. At that time, I will put you on trial. I will speak against those who cheat employees of their wages, who oppress widows and orphans, or who deprive the foreigners living among you of justice. For these people do not fear me, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So you see this prophetic thread weaving. God is gonna come to to clear out all the mess. And so by Jesus clearing out the temple the way that he did, He's stepping right into that prophetic tradition. And he's saying, enough, enough with all the corruption, enough of the exploitation. It is time for God's blessing to return. And this is why, if you look at verse 14, right after all the chaos and the table flipping and the bleeding animal, bleating animals, I don't think he hurt any animals. They were all running away. You know, goats are making noise. Doves are flying off. It's all chaotic. Right after all that happens, look at what happens next. It says the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The blind and the lame, he healed them because that's what this place was meant to be. It was meant to be the source of blessing and life and healing for the world. And Jesus was getting it back to that ideal. He was doing in the temple what the temple was always supposed to do. So that's the, the prophetic thread. But there's a bit of a twist to it. And, and maybe I'll call this the third thread. This is like another thread that weaves into these other two because there's a twist. You see, Jesus was, was yes, trying to get the temple back to its ideal, but, but he wasn't just trying to restore the temple to what it was or what it was supposed to be. No, he, he was working to fulfill its purpose. Stay with me here. He was trying to fulfill the storyline that we just talked about, that whole storyline of God bringing humanity back to Eden, to, back to blessing, back to life. Jesus was trying to fulfill the story of God forgiving the sins of humanity. If you remember the temple, what I said, it was the meeting point between heaven and earth, right? It was a place for God to dwell among us, just like in the Garden of Eden. 
Well, guess what? Jesus is God dwelling among us, isn't he? Jesus is the meeting point between heaven and earth. He is the source of life and blessing and forgiveness of sins for the world. So catch this uh, and see if you can understand it. Jesus is the temple. (laughs) Right? Right, your head just exploded. Jesus is the temple now. He's not just trying to restore the temple to what it used to be. He is trying to replace it with himself. He is exactly what the temple was always meant to be. He is God himself in our midst. That's wild to think about, but it's all through the gospel stories. So yes, as the temple, as it's meant to be, Jesus can barge in and flip over tables and tear down this whole corrupt system because it is no longer necessary. It's no longer necessary. Jesus himself has opened back up the gates of Eden. When he died on the cross, the the curtain that separated the most holy place from everyone else in the world, it ripped in two because Jesus was opening back up the gates, back up to God's presence. Through him and his kingdom, this world can get back to the way it was meant to be. Jesus is the temple. In John's version of the story, after Jesus clears out the temple, the religious leaders are outraged at this. They're furious, of course. And they ask him for some kind of sign. Prove it to us that you have the authority to do this. Do some sort of miraculous sign. And here's what he says. He says, all right, all right, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. What? They exclaimed, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple... He meant his own body, his own body, because Jesus is the temple. Destroy it, and he'll raise it up in three days. And guess what? That is exactly what happened. After these same religious leaders who were scoffing at his, at his, his audacity, they executed him while Jesus rose to new life after three days. The true temple had returned The story was fulfilled and the corruption of greed and injustice and violence and pride would never be found in it again. God himself had entered into our world, just like the prophet Malachi had predicted, uh, coming in with blazing fire and passion and and, and like a strong soap. He, He was clearing it all out and making things right. So that's where all these threads are leading. I know it's a lot. There's so much stuff packed into these six verses, but all of these threads are leading to this moment. Yes, Jesus was the Messiah. He was was coming in to kick out foreign influence and, and cleanse Israel of corruption. Yes, Jesus was a prophet. He was decrying the abuse of Israel's leaders and tearing down rotten systems of injustice. And yes, Jesus was the fulfillment of the whole storyline of the Bible. He he was God himself in the flesh who had arrived to bring humanity back into his presence, back to justice, back to life. Jesus was the new temple. And all of that is why we see him flipping tables. We've seen him as as a, a merciful We've seen him as compassionate. We've seen him as God himself. Well, today we are seeing that Jesus, he makes things right. Jesus makes things right. That's what this is all about. Jesus makes things right in this broken world. Now, again, you probably didn't realize all of that was behind these six verses, and I could probably keep going. There's a whole bunch more stuff that we could dig into, but it's there. 
Now I just want to ask us this. What do we do with this? How do we take this and and apply it to our lives today or to the church today? What what is this passage saying to us? Well, let's let's talk about that. Because this series is all about understanding the character of of Jesus better, right? We want to know him better and, and, and grow in our understanding of our Savior. So what do we learn by looking at this story? Well, if you remember back in May, we did a series about the book of Micah. And one of the ways that I talked about Micah was by saying that he afflicts the comfortable and he comforts the afflicted, right? That's how Micah operated. Well, I think this story does the same thing. This story does the same thing. It afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. When Jesus storms into the temple with all of his blazing passion and he, he rips apart corrupt systems, it can be a bit uncomfortable for us to see. And here's why, because we're, we're, we're used to seeing Jesus as meek and mild and, and, and loving and gracious and compassionate, but all of a sudden we see him here and he is raging against the machine of, of power and wealth and abuse, right? He's not going to stand for God's justice and righteousness and presence being, being corrupted by the very sin which broke our world in the first place. No, he's zealous. He's passionate. He's not going to stand for walls being built between people and God. He's going to rip those walls down. That's who he is. Here's why this is uncomfortable for us. Because in America today, I'm just going to shoot straight with you. I don't know that we in the evangelical church have have done such a great job of keeping the church, of keeping Christ's body free from corrupting influences like success and money and political power. I think we have built a lot of walls. In Jesus' day, the priests, as I said, they were in bed with Rome, right? Well, how often, how often in the American church have we allowed the allure of national influence and power to compromise our values? I'm not just talking recent history. This is a pattern for us. Back then, uh, there were all these money changers, right, and, and, and vendors in the temple courts trying to enrich themselves, trying to take advantage of, of people who didn't have much. Well, how often have we in the American church fed into what, what I call the Christian industrial complex, right, the giant industry of Christian books and mo- movies and music and events and conferences and knickknacks and stuff that really, at the end of the day, Nine times out of ten, it really just kind of serves to, to, to enrich a few elite people. Maybe they don't even believe in Jesus. How, how often have we fed into that? Or another example, in, in Jesus' day, King Herod, like I said, was expanding this big temple, right? Well, guess what we call that temple today? Like, go to Wikipedia. You know what it's called? Herod's temple. Think about that. We call it Herod's temple. What did the priests of Jesus' day allow to happen when they let Herod turn this holy place into a vanity project? Well, how often have we today allowed leaders in the church to be idolized, to be deified? How often have we helped them to glorify themselves instead of God? You know how often we do it? Well, I'll tell you how often. You look at, at the news, you look at stories, and you see these leaders having these, these catastrophic falls after, after it's revealed that they've had some major scandal or, or abusive power or something like that. You know why that keeps happening? Because we keep lifting them up so high. How often do we do that? No wonder the credibility gap is so wide right now. I'm just shooting straight. If Jesus were to barge into the American church today, I think he might want to flip a few tables. So yeah, 
<laughs> this story can afflict the, afflict the comfortable a little bit. And I know I'm talking big picture. I'm talking about the church. I also think it forces us to do a little introspection for ourselves. This can make us look at our own lives a little bit. When we look at this story, I think it's an invitation for us to ask, okay, does my life, does my faith resemble the justice and peace and mercy and generosity and love that God calls us to? Does that, is that what it looks like? Is my lifestyle in Christ, is my lifestyle an abundant invitation for others to join me in an Eden kind of life? Is that how I live? Or does the way that I live out my faith in any way, does it create barriers for people? Does it put up walls between other people and God? That's why this story can be a bit uncomfortable because if we let it, this is a story that shows us that our Savior is not gonna stand for the wall building. He's not gonna stand for the the corruption that's gonna keep people from coming back to Eden and God's presence. It's uncomfortable because when we see the passion, the blazing passion of our Savior, it does force us to ask ourselves a question. Are there any tables in my life that need to be flipped? It's an important question to ask. Like I said, this story, it afflicts the comfortable, or it should. But let me change the tone just a little bit here because that's only half of it. If this story should afflict the comfortable, it should also comfort the afflicted. There are some afflicted among us. Look, when we talk about the corrupting influence of injustice and success and power and how it, how it seems to infiltrate holy places, I realize some of you are on the receiving end of that. Maybe in the church, maybe in our world at large. You're not the money changers who are, who are you know, marking things up for a profit. You're the person being gouged for your money. Maybe the injustice that you've experienced at the hands of others, maybe that is causing you to question the goodness of God. Maybe you've been taken advantage of by people. You're losing your will to keep going and you don't really feel like it's worth it to keep going to the temple day after day, so to speak. Or maybe you've been cast out. Cast out, you've been excluded, you've been cast to the side. Maybe by Christians, you've been excluded, you've been kept on the outside. Maybe you feel isolated and marginalized right now. Or maybe, maybe somebody with authority in the church has hurt you deeply. Maybe you have spiritual abuse or trauma or church hurt because someone who claimed to represent God took advantage of you. If for any reason you feel distant from the love of God, especially because of somebody in the church or somebody in authority, if you feel like that, like there's a wall between you and him, I want you to know that this story can offer you hope. Jesus was not just clearing the temple to to make a point. He was clearing the temple to make room, to make room for you. Again, verse 14, what did he do? After all the chaos and the table flipping, he invited the blind and the lame, the nobodies, the outcasts, to come and join him in the temple so he could offer them healing and life the aftermath of that chaos was renewal. Jesus wants to make room for you, especially, especially if there have been walls built up between you and the Father. 
He wants to rip those walls down. So if you are oppressed or afflicted in any way, I want you to understand When we look at these six verses, we see a zealous prophet. We see the blazing fire of God's presence. We see the Messiah at work, the Son of God, and we see him flipping tables for you. Jesus Christ longs to bring you back into God's presence. That's what he cares about. That's what he longs to do. Back to justice, back to life, and he is blazing with a passion to make it happen. He's not going to stop until he brings you home. So there you have it. Six little verses that give us an awful lot to think about. And whether, whether this story is a shock to the system for you or whether it's a comforting balm I hope that this week each one of us is going to remember that yes, our world is still broken but our Savior Jesus, he's always been in the business of making it right. Take a moment. Place yourself in the story of Jesus clearing the temple. You are a visitor to Jerusalem, and you slowly limp up a crowded street toward the temple. You know you're not allowed to go in, but you just want to see it. You are nobody. You have no money, and no power, and no status. But growing up, you heard the stories of the God of the Hebrews. He was strong, and he was fierce. He fought for his people. He rescued them again and again, and in return, he demanded their worship. And so, you want to see this temple, this place where God supposedly meets with his people. You finally make your way into the courtyard, and the sounds and the smells of animals and hundreds of people completely overwhelm you. What on earth are you supposed to do here? You lean against a wall and slowly sink into the ground. You cannot meet with this God, this God of the Hebrews here. But suddenly, a strong and angry voice rises over the crowd. Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And before you know what to think about the speech, you see a young man charge forward and start throwing things. You watch in shock as he yells and he clears the courtyard, berating the money changers and chasing the animals out into the streets. You notice that the powerful people are also glaring at him, clearly furious. You have seen those looks before. This man will pay for his actions. But that doesn't stop him. He clears the temple courtyard and then he stops, panting, hands on his knees, sweat dripping into his beard. The courtyard is impossibly quiet. And then he looks up. He looks directly at you. And you know somehow 
You just know he did this for you. How do you feel in this moment? Does it shock you to see Jesus acting so provocatively? How does it feel to know that Jesus is blazing with passion to make all things right for you? Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.